This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Today, we have a very exciting guest that a lot of people are going to be interested in. It's Jessica Weiser. She's a board-certified dermatologist who specializes in medical, surgical, and cosmetic dermatology. She has an extensive medical background. She has her BA with honors in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania. She then received a degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She then did a medical internship at New York University and trained in dermatology at Columbia University Medical Center, where she was also the chief resident in dermatology. She has numerous publications in peer-reviewed journals in dermatology, surgery, and various other medical forums. She performs surgical procedures for skin treatments, for skin cancers, benign skin growths, and she's also actively teaching advanced surgical and cosmetic techniques to the dermatology residents at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. But her passion really is cosmetic expertise. This is going to be a little bit of a lengthier podcast, but she's going to get really deep and detailed into lasers, Botox, fillers, platelet-rich plasma, and then generalized skincare. So doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The first part, we're going to talk about lasers. I'll tell you, as, say, as a paid doctor, I know nothing about lasers other than I use them in presentations to point at things. <laughs> Technically, that's probably a light beam, but lasers are a really fascinating topic and something that I deal with on a daily basis. I think the first thing to understand is that lasers are extremely powerful, they are extremely efficient, but they can also be quite dangerous. The key with any laser procedure is understanding exactly which laser is used to target what specific condition or problem people are complaining about on their skin. So I think just to back up a little bit, the most important thing is when people are getting laser treatment, this is something that you educated me about, is while there are a lot of lasers, you have to know how to use the laser because it's important to know who is running the laser. Because for example, there are people who are not board certified dermatologists. To be a board certified dermatologist, you have a medical degree, which is four years Then you went on to do four, correct me if I'm wrong, four more years of dermatology. And then you specialized in cosmetic treatments. Yes. Whereas other people can, theoretically a doctor can just go out, buy a laser and say, now I'm doing cosmetic dermatology. Yes, there is a lot of that in our current aesthetic world. A lot of people are looking to enter the aesthetic marketplace, for lack of a better word. And what we find in aesthetics is that there's nothing stopping an OBGYN or a family medicine physician or an anesthesiologist from going out and saying that they are now doing aesthetics and specializing in it. But it does take a lot of training and lasers are all about physics. There's the, you have to understand energy, you have to understand pulsation, you have to understand sort of the frequency or the hertz at which you're delivering that laser. And then every laser has its own wavelength. So looking at the wavelength is going to determine what specifically you're targeting in the skin. So yes, it does take a lot of specialized training. And what we find is that oftentimes in certain states, and every state has its own regulations, there are all kinds of different people providing different laser treatments to patients with or without specific certifications. Generally, you're looking for either a board-certified dermatologist or a board-certified plastic surgeon or a board-certified ENT facial plastic surgeon. Those are generally the three subspecialties that are specifically trained in laser surgery. 
Before we get into all the very fantastic work and with all the great outcomes that you can provide, let's talk about some of the things that could go wrong if someone is not seeing the appropriate person or let's just say someone goes out, they buy a laser and they say, I am now doing laser therapy. Mm-hmm. What are some of the issues that you've seen or what are some of the risk factors with these procedures? So I think that skin type is probably the first issue that people are not specifically addressing. So obviously different skin types and different skin colors have different tolerability for laser treatment. And obviously treating darker skin types are going to be the highest risk because they have a lot of melanin in their skin surface. When you have a lot of melanin, oftentimes that melanin will obstruct the or will absorb the laser energy and it won't penetrate down into a blood vessel, for example, or into something else. And those are the patients who have the highest risk of discoloration or even potentially permanent scarring. We see this in procedures that are as simple as laser hair removal. We see it with mild laser facials that people are having done in spa settings. And then we also see it in medical offices with some frequency. So the key is understanding how the laser works in order to tailor the specific laser settings to be appropriate for the patient that you're treating. So this is really directed to more the lay public. So what things should they know? Can you just give a little bit of background on the lasers and how they're going to work? The way that lasers work is that each laser has a specific wavelength that is targeted to what we call a chromophore. A chromophore can be one of three things in the skin. It can be hemoglobin, which is a molecule found in the blood cells. So that means we're targeting redness, we're targeting broken capillaries, we're targeting red scars with that type of laser. The second chromophore we treat is melanin, and that would be in patients who have you know, sunspots or freckles or other pigmentation um, that they're bothered by. And the third chromophore that we target is water. When you target water, you're using a laser that's causing a resurfacing of the skin surface, meaning all your skin cells have water in them. So if we take a laser that's targeting the water, we are literally destroying cells in the skin surface to help either treat acne scars or wrinkles and fine lines or something to really help reestablish that skin surface. The key with these lasers is that they also can be absorbed by other things. So if I'm, let's say, trying to target a broken capillary in the skin, but that skin is very heavily pigmented, meaning patient has dark skin type, the laser doesn't know to not target the pigment and can actually cause a burn, a blister, or a scar by targeting the pigment sort of accidentally. I'm not trying to target the pigment, but if I don't know better, that laser can pick up the pigment instead of the hemoglobin and create a burn or a scar in the skin. What are some of the things that you would see the best outcomes with using a laser? Like if someone has, say, this condition, they should be thinking, you know what, I want to put my best face forward. I think some laser therapy would be beneficial. So we treat sort of the gamut of things, but I would say the most common things we're treating are redness and rosacea. So rosacea is a very, very common condition that causes redness, flushing, and broken capillaries primarily of the face. While we can use some topical modalities, some creams and prescriptions to help calm some of the redness or some of the sort of pimply breakouts that can go along with that redness, oftentimes those broken capillaries can only be targeted with a laser. And by addressing them, we can usually significantly improve the skin tone in somebody who tends to be very prone to redness, flushing, blushing, um, and sometimes it can be quite disfiguring or it can be sort of socially uncomfortable for people to have that type of redness. So that's a very easy condition to target with specific types of laser. Other things we target, we target a lot of sun freckling. So people who have a lot of pigmentation, who have a lot of sun damage can be targeted with a wide array of different types of machines. But people come in and they say, oh yeah, I've been out in the sun for years. 
And oftentimes we'll treat the face, the neck, the chest, all different kinds of sun exposed areas. And that can be either treated with a laser or with something called a light source, like an intense pulse light, which actually targets a variety of different wavelengths all at the same time. So laser is one wavelength. That's sort of the definition of a laser is that it's all one wavelength of light. Whereas an IPL has multiple different wavelengths in one pulse. So you're sort of targeting a variety of different things at the same time. What's an IPL? IPL, intense pulse light. Okay. So that's one of the types of devices. People call it a laser. It's not truly a laser. It's actually a light source. It can't be defined as a laser because it has multiple wavelengths of light being emitted at the same time. So again, sort of getting into that nitty gritty science stuff again. If someone comes in with sunspots or rosacea or any other conditions that are commonly treated with these lasers or light therapy, what other conditions that they have? So we treat a lot of textural concerns in the skin. We treat acne scarring, which is a very common concern because we tend to be at least, I would say, 20-somethings and up tend to be patients who were not necessarily treated aggressively enough for their acne when it was happening. And they're left over with a good amount of textural scarring. Generally, the scars can be depressed from the skin surface. And we often use resurfacing laser to target those types of scars because the resurfacing lasers make teeny tiny little microscopic holes in the skin and force new skin to develop to help smooth out the scars. And the results can be really exceptional. Similarly, we can resurface wrinkling and fine lines. So people who have lots of wrinkles or lots of fine lines in the skin, people who have very enlarged pores in the skin, and people who also have had a lot of sun damage, which creates a lot of textural abnormalities, can also be treated with that resurfacing laser. And those are the ones that tend to target those water molecules that I was talking about before. So you target the water, you create these little tiny microscopic wounds, and that wound healing response helps to smooth the skin surface. Let's start laser by laser, I think is probably the best way to do it, or sort of at least chromophore by chromophore. Vascular laser is probably the most common things that people come in for. So going back to rosacea, I gave rosacea as a quick example, but we also use that same laser to target spider veins and blue veins in the legs. So we treat not varicose because those are generally too large to target with a laser, but we certainly are treating the reticular, those sort of bluish purple veins that people get in the legs, and then also the little fine spider veins that people get in the legs. So we treat a lot of different types of blood vessels. That same anti-redness laser can then also be used for red scars and keloids. When a scar forms, you get a lot of new blood vessel formation around the scar to help heal the wound. And sometimes you'll just get broken capillaries around the scar, but sometimes you will also get a red or thickened keloid scar. And by treating the vascular component, by treating the blood vessels that are feeding the scar, what we find is that you can actually shrink down the scar tissue and improve the coloration of the scar tissue at the same time. So we are actually finding that we're treating keloids, we're treating fine red scars, and that's also something that we're doing a lot of on a day-to-day basis. Some people simply have fine broken capillaries on the face that don't even qualify for rosacea. There's a genetic component to it. We see patients after facelift surgery where they come in and they've had some kind of surgical procedure and due to the tension or stretching of the skin, we see more broken capillaries and we're able to remove those easily. There's no downtime associated with these anti-redness procedures, essentially. Sometimes a little bit of redness or a bit of swelling, but usually less than 24 hours. So people are going right back to their work, right back to their activities, right back to their sports. There's really no true restriction from what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Getting further into things like pigmentation, there's lots of different types of pigmentation. And along with pigmentation, we're also treating pigments such as tattooing. 
So if you get into, obviously I mentioned sunspots because that's something that's very common, but we also use lasers to remove general sun-induced pigmentation, and then we use them to also remove tattooing. There's three different wavelengths of tattoo laser, which essentially will target ink in the tattoo. And it's sort of, if you essentially think of ink in a tattoo as sort of like rocks or pebbles under the skin, just in terms of a, an analogy, the tattoo laser actually takes those rocks and pebbles and gradually over a period of procedure, grinds it up into almost like a sand-like consistency that your body's immune system can then sort of scavenge and remove. So we're able to actually, you know, almost completely remove tattoos, sometimes completely remove them with no scar. And that's something that's another very common sort of pigment type of tattoo removal. And then we also should get into the idea of melasma, which is a very common sort of hormonal induced pigmentation on the skin. People refer to it as the mask of pregnancy. So a lot of women suffer from this after birth control pill consumption or also after pregnancy. It's classically triggered by estrogen and it causes these relatively intense sort of patchy pigmented areas on the forehead, along the cheekbones, sometimes along the jawline, and they can be quite bothersome cosmetically. And the key with melasma is understanding that they shouldn't be treated with a standard type of laser, but they should be treated with a very specific, we use a laser called a clear and brilliant, which is a very, very low energy laser but it's able in a series of treatments to really very gradually break down the pigmentation and give people back an, a nice even complexion, which is also sort of a pretty spectacular thing to be able to restore. Pregnancy does a lot of things to the body. And I think that when people are bothered by sort of facial outcome from it, that's also something that can be pretty concerning to women. Uh, Just to go a little bit deeper into that point before you sure. go on to the other. So can you want to discuss some of the things that pregnancy will do to... Skin. Yeah, lots of things. So pregnancy is one of those conditions that different women are affected very differently by pregnancy hormones. But the most common things that we see, one is that we see a lot of broken capillary blood vessels or what we call spider angiomas, which tend to happen mostly on the neck and the chest in women, but can happen really anywhere on the body. These are something that is due to this sort of increased blood flow and blood volume that we see along with pregnancy. And so we do see a lot of redness or sort of what we call plethora, which is sort of flushing and blushing of the cheeks. And those usually either resolve after pregnancy on their own, or again, if you have little residual spider angiomas or little red spots on the skin, they look almost like little tiny red like pen marks on the skin. Some of them have a little pink blush around them. Some of them do not. And those are very common, probably the most common thing we see. We also see a lot of skin tags in pregnancy and skin tags are frustrating because they're really not medically of any concern, but they tend to catch on things. They tend to happen around the neck, in the underarm, sometimes in the groin. Most commonly we believe at sites of friction, so where your shirt collar rubs on your neck, in the underarm where the skin rubs against the skin, and also in the groin, the same idea, that same type of friction. These little tags, they literally are just tiny, tiny little um, like excess pieces of skin that sort of hang off the skin and they catch and they bother and sometimes they will even like pull or bleed if they're a little bit larger. And so those are very common during pregnancy also. And sometimes post-pregnancy we'll have someone come in and we'll remove 15 or 20 or even 100 tags depending on sort of your genetic predisposition and also weight gain and friction and all those things that happen during the period of pregnancy. Spider veins, which I briefly touched on before, also very common in pregnancy and something that I try and encourage all of my patients to do, which is not the loveliest thing to do every day as a pregnant woman, but is really helpful and preventative, is to actually buy compression socks or compression tights and wear them um, on a daily basis. 
the amount of pressure that happens in the pelvis during pregnancy, just from the baby and the uterus and the fluid and everything that creates pressure in the pelvis, decreases how the blood flows out of the legs back up towards the heart and tends to cause a lot of varicose veins and spider veins, which after pregnancy, people always sort of look at and they're frustrated because they don't go away. Once you have those spider veins um, and broken capillaries in the legs, they stay. And if you can wear compression to help encourage that circulation back up to the heart, it can be really preventative and really maintain great skin on the legs post-pregnancy as well. And then melasma is probably the other thing that we see a lot of. Melasma happens usually um, as early as the first trimester, and it can get escalatingly worse during pregnancy and even during breastfeeding. So it continues to happen throughout the course of pregnancy and often even continues to happen afterwards. The two classic triggers for melasma... I and melasma is what exactly? Melasma is that sort of mask of pregnancy, those pigmented patches on the face, over the forehead, over the cheekbones. It's sort of what we call like a lace-like pattern. It's not like freckles where you have a few little ones. It tends to happen almost in big clumps of, of freckling. And as I said, the most common places happen over areas that are touched by the sun. So UV is the second classic trigger that goes along with estrogen. We say sun plus estrogen are the two most common problems that happen. So maintaining excellent sun protection when you're pregnant is really crucial. It won't necessarily prevent the melasma, but it often can keep it from getting significantly worse over the course of the 40 weeks. Any sun exposure will specifically make the dark patches even darker. So the darker the area, the more preferentially it will continue to tan or pigment. So it just makes it that much more difficult for us to get rid of it afterwards if it keeps getting darker and darker and darker than the normal skin. And any comments on hair loss for women when they're pregnant? Hair loss doesn't happen when you're pregnant. Generally with hair, what we find is actually during pregnancy, we shift from the normal hair cycle where we say 80% of the hairs are normally in a growing phase um, at any one period of time. And we say that about 5 to 10% are in a resting phase and the remaining 10 to 15% are in a falling out phase or what we call telogen phase. When you're pregnant, almost 100% of those hairs shift into the growing phase. And so actually during pregnancy, most women find that they get very, very thick hair on their head. The key is what happens is that once you go into labor, the trauma of labor shifts all of those hairs into the resting phase. And so for the first three months, you kind of feel like you're fine. And then about 90 days post-pregnancy, most women enter what we call a telogen effluvium, which is a pretty massive hair loss that happens for a period of three to six months post-pregnancy. It's a temporary hair loss. The vast majority of women regrow 100% of that hair or very close to 100%, but you have hair loss for three to six months that starts about 90 days postpartum. And that hair loss can be really profound. We find that some women can lose up to 50% of their hair in the six-month period. So you end up with a six- or nine-month-old baby. You've lost a ton of hair. And then gradually at that point, the hair will start to regrow and you'll end up with lots of sort of little baby hairs, particularly around the hairline. We find the frontal hairline to be the most obviously affected. It's hard to tell if it's more prominently affected than other areas, but it certainly is the most obvious because women really notice the thinning up around that frontal hairline the most significantly. Just to get back to the other things that are treated with the lasers... So going back to sort of other laser options, so we were talking about pigmentation. I'm going to move on to resurfacing lasers, and I'm going to go back to one more pregnancy item because it's a very common complaint and it's the toughest one to treat, and those are stretch marks. So stretch marks, essentially, what I always equate stretch marks to is, you know, if you had a rubber hairband and you put it on your wrist and you stretch it out and you use it and you stretch it out and you use it, 
eventually it sort of loses its elasticity and you can like no longer stretch it. It's kind of a stretched out loop and it doesn't rebound quite as nicely as it should. The skin is very similar and in pregnancy in some women in particular, we do find that the skin sort of stretches beyond its natural capacity to recoil and you end up with stretch marks. The usual pattern is that the stretch marks are initially sort of a reddish or almost purplish color where you sort of look like you have what people describe as streaks or even lightning bolt-like appearance on the skin surface. It can happen on the breasts. It can happen on the abdomen. Those are the two most common places in pregnancy. And the key is that when you have those reddish purple stretch marks, that is sort of the best time to go after treating them because we can use those anti-redness lasers, going back to that same other device as before. When you send that heat energy into those reddish streaks, it's absorbed by the reddish part of the stretch marks. And it really helps to blend and contract those stretch marks because of that heat energy going through and stimulating that sort of healing response. So that those red stretch marks tend to pick up the energy well, and they tend to respond to it quite well. And a series of anti-redness laser at that stage can be very helpful. Maybe it's not perfect afterwards, but it certainly can restore the skin quite nicely. How many people come in preemptively and say, hey, I'm pregnant. I want to avoid stretch marks. A lot. A lot of people come in asking for it. Sometimes we can help prevent them and sometimes we can't. Some people are genetically prone to it. Obviously, people who are carrying multiples, so twins and triplets, are certainly much more prone because there's significant more stretch in the skin during pregnancy. But genetically, some people are just very prone to them. And so certainly we will give any patient techniques of how to combat them and what we can do to do our best to prevent them, but they're not always preventable. Keeping the skin well hydrated is my number one suggestion to all pregnant women. Doing a daily massage with an skin oil, whether it be argan oil or rosehip oil or something that's very hydrating and very nourishing to the skin, every single day of pregnancy, usually right after the shower is the best time because the oil really soaks in and saturates the skin surface. And also that skin massage, so literally the process of just simply massaging the skin is also thought to be helpful in, in the prevention process. Short of that, there's not much else to do. Most of the things that we treat are not safe to treat during pregnancies. I do not perform any injection treatments or laser treatments during pregnancy at all. It's never been studied and certainly we're not willing to cause any harms. If it's not tried and true and we don't know it's not causing a problem, we are avoiding it during pregnancy. Once the stretch marks lose their redness, so usually months post stretch mark development, they become white stretch marks or what we call stria alba. And those are the tougher ones to treat because they truly are sort of indented or what we call atrophic from the skin surface. So you literally see smooth skin and then within it, you almost see the little etched white depressed lines in the skin. And those are the really tough stretch marks to treat. And those require resurfacing laser. And we can use something like a non-ablative laser, which is a little bit easier to tolerate in terms of sort of the healing and the recovery. And when we say there's two types of lasers, we call them non-ablative and ablative. When we're using a non-ablative laser, what we find is that we are going deep under the skin surface. We're not actually damaging the skin surface. We're damaging sort of the dermis, that second layer of skin and forcing it to sort of regenerate itself. And that's usually where most of the damage is when you have indented marks on the skin. Most of that damage is happening in the dermis and that second skin layer. So those are the non-ablative lasers. And usually it will take anywhere between three and eight sessions of a resurfacing laser to improve something like stretch marks. They're not easy to take care of. There's also lasers that do a combination of what we call non-ablative, which I just explained, with ablative lasers. Ablative lasers target also help resurface 
just the skin, but they also target the epidermis or the more superficial layers of skin. So when you're ablating the skin surface, there's going to be more crusting and scabbing because we are treating that surface layer of the skin. Whereas with non-ablative lasers, it tends to be more redness and swelling with very little scab or crust on the skin surface in the healing process. And both of those lasers can be used to treat stretch marks. So that was sort of where I was getting back into the resurfacing lasers. That sort of overlap between pregnancy and resurfacing is quite common because we do treat a lot of stretch marks um, in the postpartum period. And then resurfacing for other things. So we do a lot of resurfacing. Resurfacing is one of the primary ways in which we stimulate collagen production in the skin. And so we can smooth the skin surface quite effectively with a variety of different resurfacing procedures. Probably the most common one that people hear the name of, it sort of it scares some people, it excites some people, it just depends on your perspective, is the Fraxel laser. Fraxel is something that a lot of people have heard of. They're not necessarily always sure what it does, but Fraxel is probably the gold standard in resurfacing. It comes in two different types, but the Fraxel dual can help resurface against pigmentation, can also help resurface acne scars and stretch marks and wrinkles and fine lines, and has recently actually been shown to be quite helpful in treating what we call actinic keratoses, which are sun-induced precancerous lesions on the skin surface that have a risk of becoming non-melanoma skin cancers, so basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. And actually, these resurfacing lasers have shown to significantly improve or resolve some of these precancerous lesions as well, which is really nice that we have sort of non-aggressive modalities to target those and really prevent them from becoming cancerous and requiring surgery as well. So in terms of other resurfacing lasers, there's also something called a CO2 laser, which is an ablative laser. So depending on the wavelengths of the lasers, they sort of are classified into different categories. But the CO2 is the gold standard in terms of ablation, meaning it really takes away skin surface and it can take away sort of deeper scars as well. But it does create generally, if you're using a fractionated CO2 laser, it's going to have about a week of downtime. So when you say resurfacing, can you clarify what that means? What a resurfacing laser does is it creates microscopic wounds in the skin surface. So what it's doing is it's essentially destroying help, um, some of that tissue damage, meaning it's going in, we're using heat energy to go in and create little tiny microscopic, almost holes in the skin. You don't see them, but that's certainly what the laser is doing. And by targeting that damaged tissue, it's essentially creating a wound and forcing your body to heal and create new skin in its place. So if I take a scar, and I resurface it, meaning I poke little holes in it, it's not going to form new scar tissue. It's going to form sort of healthy, fresh tissue because these are very, very controlled, very small wounds in the skin. That makes sense. And so it actually is pretty spectacular because you can use it for a surgical scar. You can use it for a traumatic scar. We've been known to do resurfacing lasers for women who are victims of domestic abuse and for people who have had scars from mutilation. And I think that the idea that you can sort of, I don't like to use the word erase, but that you can dramatically improve those scars for people people also can be pretty life-changing for some people. And how effective are these lasers at getting rid of a scar? Um, it depends on the scar and it depends on the skin tone of the person, but we have pretty significant success. I would say that my acne scar patients are probably getting 90 plus percent improvement in their acne scarring if they're consistent and doing enough treatment. It, one single session is not getting rid of your scars. These are always a series of treatments. Generally, most laser treatments are a series. There's very seldom a procedure where someone comes in and they do one treatment and they're completely happy afterwards. Most of the time we treat and then we check in at about four to six weeks on most of our devices and sort of determine 
how much improvement they've had, how do we adjust the settings to make it even better. And again, if you see that someone's tolerating a laser very well, certainly you're escalating you know, your energy or your depth or your percent of surface coverage area. These are all different parameters that can be changed depending on the patient and their individual circumstance. So now let's talk about skin tightening. Yeah. So skin tightening is sort of a, I would probably say a newer part of the game. In the past five to 10 years, there have been significant progress made in the realm of skin tightening. And when we talk about the aging process, what we find is that one of the most common complaints people say is that their face is falling or their skin is falling. And it's sort of a funny way of thinking of it, but you are losing collagen and elastin, which are the two proteins in the skin that help maintain the skin tension and keep the skin tight. And what I think one of the primary goals with a lot of my patients, at least, and I believe a lot of patients sort of at least nationally, maybe even worldwide, is to try and avoid going under the knife. So if you can avoid having a major radical facelift at 65 and we can do some maintenance skin tightening starting in your 40s or 50s, oftentimes we are helping patients completely avoid more intense surgeries and more significant healing time. In terms of skin tightening, there's essentially two primary modalities that are used. One is radio frequency. So radio frequency is a heat source, and essentially by heating the, the tissue at various depths and with various intensities, we can stimulate collagen production and help the skin sort of heal and contract. There's a, a ton of different radio frequency tightening devices. Probably the most classic one is something called Thermage, which is a slightly deeper, more intense sort of radio frequency delivery mechanism. And it's a pretty impressive improvement in terms of watching the skin sort of lift and tighten. But each of these treatments generally takes about 12 weeks to see the full effect because you're inducing this sort of heat-induced tissue contraction. And that process of creating new collagen protein takes about 6 to 12 weeks. So really, we're starting to see improvements six weeks after the treatment, and you're continuing to see improvement up to 12 weeks post-treatment. Radiofrequency can also be done in a more superficial manner. There's different types. There's monopolar and bipolar and multipolar. It's very complex sort of science in terms of what radiofrequency can do. But what we find is that whether it's depending on the modality that either a single session once a year or sometimes, you know, three or four sessions and space out over the course of the year can really help maintain some of the skin tension and um, maintain a sharper jawline, prevent some of that jowl formation. People are really bothered by their jowls where they start to feel the skin kind of collecting along the jawline and around the mouth and also the tissue around the eye. So we find that the skin gets a little baggy or sometimes it sags around the eye. And we can also help to maintain that skin a little bit more taut to maintain a more youthful appearance. The second modality is sort of a high-focused ultrasound heat energy. And I think a lot of people think ultrasound is kind of interesting because the same type of ultrasound that forms a picture when you're pregnant or that you go to the emergency room with stomach pain, and that same heat energy is actually used for a procedure called ultherapy. Ulthera is a technique that delivers heat energy at a variety of different depths. So there is a four and a half millimeter depth that is thought to target essentially a layer called the fascia or the SMAS, which is a layer underneath the fat, but overlying the muscle of the neck and the face. And by delivering heat energy down into that layer, you're helping to sort of contract and lift the tissue. And then there's one that's a sort of a three millimeter depth that's thought to target the dermis, which is that second layer of skin and help stimulate collagen to make the skin more tight. So you're getting both a combination of skin lifting and skin tightening, which can be really useful for skin of the neck, skin of the lower face. And then we also use it around the eyes to help elevate the brow because the brow also tends to fall a little bit as we age um, and to keep that skin around the eye a little bit tighter. People always say that they feel like their eyelids get heavier as they get older. And a component of that is also that the eyebrow sort of descends a little bit as the skin becomes more mature. 
So skin tightening is sort of something that is still, I think, in the works. I think there's going to be a lot more technological advancement in the area of skin tightening, but we certainly made major strides in the past five to 10 years. There was really no non-invasive tightening options available 10 years ago at all. So really surgery was the only option. And I think it's quite exciting to people that we now have non-surgical skin tightening options. These tightening options also are used for loose skin of the arms, abdomen, neck. We use them over the knees. Knees are sort of a funny thing, but a lot of women are really self-conscious of their knees. We're using a lot of skin tightening treatments in men as well, particularly along the jawline. People have to wear a suit and tie and are starting to notice a little bit of that skin laxity along the jawline or under the chin. A lot of men are becoming conscious of that. How does the laser treatment or your therapy compare to surgical options? So it's certainly not going to give you quite as dramatic of of a result as a surgical option would give you. Obviously, a surgery is going to restore as much of your youthfulness as possible, meaning they're going to give you a very dramatic lift and tightening. But I always say that for some people, facelift is appropriate, but not for everybody. There are a lot of people who never want to go back to 25-year-old jawline. But with something like, let's say you're doing an all therapy or a thermage once a year and you're really helping to maintain What you're doing is you're really slowing down the aging process so that you're never going to go from having super youthful face and contour and jawline to all of a sudden having a rapidly aged face and jawline. You're going to sort of gradually maintain it and really slow down that tissue laxity that does develop over time. Some people have really profound skin laxity and the people who really are significantly bothered by it oftentimes will go and get a facelift. I think facelift is probably becoming less popular as these non-invasive devices become more popular, probably because people are really into this idea of a natural aesthetic, which is certainly something that I strongly promote in my practice and in my work. The idea of slowing it down, but not completely eliminating the aging process. You want to age, you just want to be age appropriate in your aging process. You don't want it to happen all of a sudden. People don't want to have a rapid decline in the way that they look but they also don't necessarily want to look, you know, 28 forever. So I think that this option of skin tightening is a really nice sort of in-between. You're not completely aging with no help and you're not completely going under the knife and having more radical transformation. It's a very nice maintenance. The other thing is that there's no scars as a result of any of the skin tightening devices that we're doing. So obviously facelift can leave pretty significant scarring. Most of the really highly advanced surgeons are leaving pretty beautiful, pretty minimal scars these days, but there certainly is scarring. Some patients are keloid prone. Some patients are prone to spread scars and to go under and have a procedure that's extremely expensive and then have more prominent scarring, I think is also problematic to a lot of patients. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again and see you next time.